When Johnny Cash sang, Sugar in the morning, sugar in the evening, sugar at supper time, be my little sugar and love me all the time, his loved ones told him, Johnny, if you don't stop all that sugar, you could get diabetes. And sadly enough, he did. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment on diabetes mellitus, early detection and prevention. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Ann Albright. Dr. Albright is the director of the Division of Diabetes Translation at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. She oversees all CDC-funded state-based diabetes programs, diabetes surveillance systems, and the National Diabetes Education Program. She was awarded the 2004 National Woman of Valor from the American Diabetes Association. Today we are discussing diabetes early detection, and prevention. Hi, Dr. Albright. It's really great of you to join us for this special segment. It's my pleasure. A lot of what we learn gets lost in translation. What approaches are you taking at the CDC to prevent that from happening? Well, there is a lot you can do in diabetes. That's, I think diabetes is the, the good news, bad news story, if you will. There are incredible number of devastating things that can happen to people with diabetes. But the good news is that we can actually try to do some things to prevent the development of type 2 diabetes and prevent the complications of diabetes. What currently are the areas of research and what current programs are you developing? Well, in the area of primary prevention, which is the prevention of type 2 diabetes, because that's the only form of the disease that we can actually prevent or postpone right now. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Division of Diabetes Translation specifically is doing a, a few things to try to address that. On the follow-up from the Diabetes Prevention Program, which was the large national randomized controlled trial, it is our job within CDC to try to translate that research into practice, and that is really a tough job. Some of the things that we're doing is to fund pilots in a few states around the country to try to take that information from the DPP and actually implement it in places outside of a research environment. So we are working with businesses, we're working with healthcare delivery systems, working with community-based organizations, and our state partners are working to try to implement practices done in the DPP in settings outside of that research environment. We also have convened experts from around the country to try to work together to talk with us and others about what should we be doing on a broader scale than what could be done in the DPP. You know, again, those were randomized controlled trial and those were specific research sites. Now we need to take that information. So we're working with others who are, I have partnerships with the YMCA and can we make those sites where people can actually work in primary prevention and get access. We're also trying to work with our healthcare professional colleagues to remind them to talk to people at risk for diabetes, to learn what the risk factors are, and to test people for prediabetes and diabetes. Many of our audience are primary care physicians. If you could give them a checklist of what they should talk about, what they should look for in primary prevention, what would be tops on your list or the top few things? The top few things to look at for primary prevention are certainly body weight, BMI. People do need to, uh, health professionals need to be talking to people about body weight and BMI, measuring it most certainly, but talking to them in constructive ways, not just, oh, you need to get out there and exercise or you should lose weight. So body weight would be one thing to look at. Race, ethnicity is also, we certainly know that people of 
African American, Hispanic Latino, American Indian, and Asian and Pacific Island descent are at high risk for developing diabetes, uh, as are women who have had gestational diabetes. So it's knowing those risk factors for diabetes and, and identifying those patients who, who fall into that category. Certainly, the older we get, the more likely you are to develop diabetes. So if you're looking again at those risk factors, it's really taking a look at those and being sure to address those with your patients. It is also, as I mentioned, not just saying, oh, gosh, get out and do something, get out and be physically active. It really is important for health professionals to be more specific with the recommendations that they have for people about physical activity and nutrition. How much do they need in terms of exercise? And what's the best for both weight loss and also for the cardiovascular effects? Yeah, I think that is a, a key thing to focus in on. There is certainly being doing anything as far as physical activity, whether it's taking the stairs instead of the elevator or the escalator, parking your car farther away. Those kinds of things can certainly help with some calorie burning, those activities of daily living that can help people burn some calories. But it is also important to encourage people to add to that, to try to work up to, as we try to recommend, 150 minutes of physical activity a week. Now, for some people, they would say, there's no way. That's too overwhelming for them. And so you really do need to start with people where they are. But it's important to emphasize that, you know, just walking, you know, a little bit each day is better than nothing, but you do need to build on that. It's important to encourage people to build on to that. The ultimate goal for those who are overweight, and this was what the premier finding was in the diabetes prevention program, is weight loss matters. It doesn't have to be a huge amount of weight, small amounts of weight. Isn't it in the range of something like 7 to 10%? That's right. That's exactly right. 7 to 10% body weight over time will have a significant impact on preventing type 2 diabetes. One question I had, because I have a background in pediatric cardiology, and they went back and forth on this issue of do you need 30 or 60 minutes of continuous exercise, or can you do this as 5 minutes here and 10 minutes there? Yes, I think when you don't already have diabetes, you certainly can try to be getting physical activity accumulated over the course of the day. We would, again, like to see people doing about 30 minutes most days of the week. But again, you have to work up to that. You know, so much of this comes down to both balancing practicality and what we would ideally like to see people do. You know, we were talking earlier about getting cardiovascular benefit and or weight loss benefit. You know, ideally, you would like to do that in one setting, get your heart rate up, get cardiovascular benefit and caloric burning benefit. But many times people's lives do not allow for that. And so would you then say, gosh, well, I can't do that, so I'm going to do nothing. Well, that's not beneficial either. So I think you really have to help people identify times in their day when they can commit to some physical activity. And for some, honestly, it may be finding those shoes, getting out, walking around the block, maybe walking to the end of their driveway. Something is better than nothing to get people started. And then you need to, as a clinician, ask your patient, have your staff ask them every time they come in, what have you been able to do? How's it going? How, how are things going? What is it that's, a pro- that's problematic for you? And what can we do to help you overcome those barriers? Is there but, a difference between the type of exercise you need for cardiovascular effect versus weight loss? Well, the short answer 
answer would, would be no. I mean, you can still do the same kinds of things. It does come down to intensity and duration. So people can walk, certainly, for weight loss, absolutely. For cardiovascular benefit, you probably want to get that intensity up a little bit to get that heart rate going. But for most people, what they're going to do for cardiovascular benefit is also going to help them with weight loss as well. Going to the obesity issue, my understanding is only that 5 to 10% of obese people have diabetes, and there are many people with type 2 diabetes who aren't obese. What are we doing to try and understand that mechanism? Well, about 80% of the people that have type 2 diabetes are overweight or obese. And so I think, you know, it's important sometimes to make that distinction between overweight and obesity. So it is a significant number of people that have type 2 that do have issues around body weight. And elevated body weight contributes to the insulin resistance problem. So I think it is not everybody with type 2 diabetes that's overweight, nor is it everyone who's overweight developed diabetes. But there is a significant interaction between the to. The, the details of that are certainly under investigation, and they are everything from insulin resistance to glucose transporters in muscle and adipose tissue that can make the loss of body weight more challenging, can make the what actually is going on metabolically more complex. But there is a very strong linkage and association from, and you can say that from an epidemiologic perspective to a biochemical or biological interaction. So I think it it means that they're certainly a targeted group of people to both prevent the gain of body weight and if body weight is an issue, to be sure that they're focusing on losing weight as effectively as you can. As part of our topic today was early detection, are there any screening tests or what's the recommendation regarding screening individuals, patients in our offices when they come in for their annual checkups? We have more information about screening people for diabetes, but when you do that, you're certainly going to find people with pre-diabetes. The current American Diabetes Association recommendations are to screen everyone over the age of 45 for diabetes. And would that be a fasting blood sugar, or what are they recommending? There are three ways to diagnose diabetes, and, and that's probably another point to make is that it is different if you're screening for versus actually doing diagnostic testing. Screening for diabetes can be done by a paper and pencil test. You can ask people what their risk factors are. That is a method of screening. You can indeed draw a sample of blood. Again, screening means you're looking for diabetes in a population that is asymptomatic. So you can do it through paper and pencil. You can also do it through a blood test. They're the same blood tests are used for screening as they are for diagnosing, although you would probably do a fasting to screen. You can also do a random. You can also, though, diagnose and, and detect diabetes through an oral glucose tolerance test. All three methods, random blood glucose, fasting blood glucose, and an oral glucose tolerance test will be both, can serve as a screen and could serve as a diagnostic test as well. And this is where it gets a little um, confusing to people because they, they sort of think, well, you know, my screener and my diagnosing. Well, in, indeed, in the case of diabetes, it can be the same tests that are used. It's just that you have to realize that when you're screening, it means you're unsure, they may have it, you're looking at their risk factors, then you would need to do a diagnostic test, which which again, as I said, could be any of those tests, but they would need to be repeated if you're indeed going to confirm the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes or diabetes at all. Sometimes you hate to say you need to scare people into doing things, but I think if you hit them with a number and said, you know, 
you know, you're pre-diabetic. Maybe we can actually motivate them to change their lifestyle. I think sometimes being factual with people, letting them know the seriousness is certainly important to do. I think it becomes a question of scaring may cause people to initially pay attention, but what we're looking for is getting people to do something for the long haul. So you better be able to follow up that that harder-hitting message, which is factual. We need to be sure that we are giving people the facts, both about getting diabetes and about the complications of diabetes. Then you need to follow on with things they can do to not walk the road of getting diabetes or of getting the complications of diabetes. So you have to you have to do a kind of a one-two. You can hit them with the important, strong information, and then you need to hit them with important information that's going to help them cope with their uh, likelihood of getting diabetes or getting uh, the complications of diabetes and what they can do. I think that's a very positive note to end upon and a great take-home message for our audience. I'd like to thank Dr. Ann Albright, who has been our guest. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and you've been listening to a special segment on the National Diabetes Education Program on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and explore our new on-demand and podcast features, which provide you access to our entire program library. Thanks for listening. I wish you good day and good health.